Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Mom and Dad are Fighting is brought to you by BullandBranch.com, the company that makes luxury bedding affordable. Order right now, and they'll give you 20% off, plus free shipping. Get sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, and more at BolandBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. And use the promo code MOMANDDAD. And by Club W, leading the grape-to-glass wine revolution. Answer just six simple questions at ClubW.com, and their algorithm will create a palette profile just for you. Get wine directly to your door, perfectly customized to match your taste. For 50% off your first order, go to clubw.com slash momanddad. And by the new middle grade novel, The Terrible Two Get Worse, the hilarious sequel to The Terrible Two, which spent more than 10 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. The following podcast contains explicit language. And welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting Slate's parenting podcast for Saturday, February 20th, the Live from Brooklyn edition. <laughs> I'm Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate and the mom of Harry, seven, Sam, five, and Wally, still two, but really, really close to being three. He's basically three. He's three. <laughs> I'm Dan Coyce, the dad of Lyra, who's 10, and Harper, who's eight. Hi, Allison. Hey. On today's show, we'll talk to Slate columnist Michelle Goldberg about the ethical and legal hazards of surrogacy. Then we'll be joined by three terrific children's artists, singer-songwriter, superstar Lori Berkner, who you all know from We Are the Dinosaurs Marching Marching at your preschool graduation, and two Newbery Award-winning authors, Rebecca Stead and Matt DeLaPena, to talk about making art for kids. Also triumphs and fails, uh, questions from the audience, joined by my husband and noted parenting expert John Cook, 
and recommendations. And for our Slate Plus segment, you'll hear us debate some parenting conundra with our audience here in Brooklyn. And we want you, if you are a fan of Mom and Dad are Fighting, to please, please tell your friends. This time around, I would like you to please tell a drummer in your life. Like, everyone knows a drummer, right? It's like a dad, maybe he lives on the next block, and he used to be in a band, and he has a drum set in the rec room, and you're like, oh, that's funny. He has a drum set, but then at one block party, he gets wasted, and then he goes down on the drums, and he fucking wails on them. <laughs> Tell that guy about our podcast, because he will love it. And that da- guy is Dan Coyce. I wish. <laughs> Uh, also, like us on Facebook. The plan is, if we get one million likes, we believe we will get a parenting book deal. Yeah, absolutely. Which will create a creative rift between the two of us. Yeah, yeah. Which I will Finally. win, and then we'll have enough money to move back to Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, our Facebook address is facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Please help Allison move back to Brooklyn. All right, let's move on to triumphs and fails. I will go first. Allison. Let me guess. You have a triumph. Great guess. <laughs> my triumph is that I've seen my kids two of the last 14 days. Uh, no, here's my actual triumph. My actual triumph <clears throat> is that last night, uh, my kids said that they wanted to play the game of life with me. And I said yes and played the whole game of life with them because that game fucking sucks. The game is terrible. It's boring. It's repetitive. It teaches terrible lessons. It's, it requires no skill whatsoever. Harper demands to be the banker, but she is bad at banking. And then at the end, here's the worst part about the game of life. At the end of the game of life, not only... Does the player who has the most money win? They give you $50,000 for every little peg child in your car, which is the exact opposite of the way the world actually works. One of the parenting conundrums that I wanted to do was you really want to have another child, but some man comes up to you on the street and says he'll give you a million dollars. If you don't, what do you do? You say yes, and you take the million dollars, right? Absolutely. So anyways, my triumph is that I played the game of life with my children, even though I hate it, because when you love someone, you do things for them, even if you think those things are stupid. Good job, Dan. Thanks. How about you? Well, first, I just want to call back to last episode's fail of mine, which was, I guess it was considering allowing Harry to play football. I heard from a lot of listeners who did not a lot. really feel that that was um, a good idea. So thanks for letting me know. The thing that actually pushed me over the edge and decided me, decided, made me decide to um, go the flag football route is John sent me a tweet from Larry King who says, I do not know why any parent these days would allow their child to play football. And something that really clicked. So no football. Thanks for your concern. Um, But my fail for this week is that my children are really not excited about camp. They just like don't want to go to camp. Why do we have to go to camp? So I thought to get them excited about camp, I would show them a a promotional video of a camp that we can't afford. So they loved it, and they're really excited, because <laughs> it's amazing. I was crying. It looks like the best experience of their lives. Best picture, 2016. <laughs> uh, but anyway, 
it turns out that actually we are going to uh, send Harry, but we're not sending Sam. And we told Sam, Sam who really loved the video and was like constantly asking about different parts of it. Um, so I'm sorry, Sam. I feel really bad about that. That was probably not a good idea. Are you? I mean, will Sam get to go to this camp someday? He's probably not. Oh. <laughs> he is going to a camp. <laughs> Every day at that camp, he'll say, you know, in the video I saw for the other camp guys, they had concierges. <laughs> yes. All right, let's move on to our first segment. Okay. For our first segment, this week, we are going to talk about surrogacy with uh, Slate columnist and special guest Michelle Goldberg. Michelle, come on out. Give it up for Michelle Goldberg. So this week, Michelle wrote a fascinating story about a complicated and pretty horrifying custody battle in California between a surrogate mother and the man who hired her to carry and deliver his child, or as it turns out, children. Um, so Michelle, before we get into the larger questions about surrogacy, just tell us the facts of this case. Okay, well, the facts are kind of are a little bit complicated. Um, some of you might have seen there was a story a, about a month ago in the New York Post, there was a surrogate who was fighting a lawsuit from the intended father who was trying to force her to abort one of the triplets that she was pregnant with. And so that's the part that kind of made the news and became a minor cause celeb among some of the anti-abortion movement, but the story's actually a lot more complicated than that. Basically, this woman is 47 years old. She's been a surrogate once before. She wants to do it one more time, probably for the final time. And the surrogacy broker, Surrogacy International, matches her with a 50-year-old man, a single man who lives with his elderly parents in Georgia and intends to spend his life savings on his dream of having a son. And so she is implanted with three male embryos. Um, you know, reproductive, most kind of reproductive medical associations frown on implanting more than one or two, but there's very little laws or regulation around surrogacy in this country. So doctors can kind of do what they will, and sometimes they'll implant more than one or two in the hopes that that will raise the odds of at least one sticking. In this case, they all stick. So now she's pregnant with triplets. And the father, um, there's a lot of reasons why you'd want to selectively reduce if you're pregnant with triplets. It's really dangerous to have triplets for both the mother and the babies. But the rationale he and his lawyer are giving her is that they, she needs to reduce because he can't afford triplets. He's not in a position to take care of them. He's, um, he's deaf, he's a postal worker. He is, in his, his emails kind of suggest that he's not entirely literate. Um, he starts emailing the clinic saying they need to see her less because they, he can't afford all of her visits. And so, anyway, she's, it turns out, is anti-abortion and didn't read the contract, which like most surrogacy, contract allow, most surrogacy contracts allows um, him to call for selective reduction. So now they're fighting about a bunch of different things. The, they were first, they were fighting about whether he could compel her to have an abortion. She sort of waited that out, and that's off the table now because she's going to have these three babies next month. So now the question is, now they've never met, and they've never so much as spoken on the phone because he's deaf. Um, but now because he said that he is broke and doesn't think he can take care of these babies, the question is then, what happens to them? She wants custody of one of them at least, and she wants some sort of hearing to determine what would be in the best interest of the other two. But California surrogacy law doesn't allow for that. I mean, basically, she kind of 
it's not clear under California law if she has any more rights to these babies than anyone in this room. Right. She there's in California surrogacy law, she's not the mother. She is sort of right. she's, she's like the, the vessel. Right, exactly. And so part of what this so her lawyer is the same lawyer who fought the Mary Beth Whitehead case, right? Which is the, the surrogacy M, right. case, the baby yeah. M case. And so his argument in this case is that what makes someone a mother is not just the genetic tie. It's that it's actually the sort of um, physiological and emotional processes of pregnancy, which the interesting thing is that I think most of us would believe that in cases where somebody is pregnant with a donor egg, right? Of course, we don't think of that person as being less, less of a mother. But so what's different here? Is it just that she signed a contract? And is that how we define parenthood, right? By, by, by contract or by something else? Right. So when you were reporting this, did you feel the lack of regulation that, that sort of made this situation possible? Did you feel it left her more vulnerable, him more vulnerable? But like, I found myself totally confused where to sort of have my allegiances in this story. Right, I th and I think in certain ways they're both, there are certain ways in which they're both not entirely sympathetic and there are certain ways in which they're both victims. I mean, I think that they were both left unprotected by the lack of regulation, right? I mean, to begin with, you know, in most countries you can't just implant someone with three embryos and it's not clear to me that you should even be permitted to do that. But, you know, it's also the financial arrangement between the two of them, the fact that there's kind of no money in escrow to pay her medical costs now that things have gotten complicated is also you know a function of the total lack of regulation and i think she assumed naively perhaps that somebody had done some sort that before she got into this somebody had done a background check on him and had done a um home study and kind of you know an assessment of what kind of of his fitness to be a parent. Which would happen like in, a, in an adoption situation. Right, and, and that actually doesn't exist in, in surrogacy. You don't have to really do anything. The surrogacy broker did do a criminal background check, but that's it. So nobody involved in this entire process has visited his house in Georgia um, or really kind of knows anything about him or his living situation yeah, about his, about his kind of personal life. And so then there's a question, you know, when I brought this up with his lawyer, his lawyer says, well, did anybody visit your house when you were pregnant to see if you were fit to raise a child? And I guess in certain in a certain sense, right, that's fair enough. Although I think on some intuitively it feels different to me. Right. Like so it's interesting that surrogacy in the United States is treated it's treated much more like a traditional pregnancy then it is treated like an like adoption, an adoption scenario. Right, right, exactly. Right. And so, you know, at least some of the medical ethicists I've talked to have said, well, no, because it is more like an adoption scenario in at least certain ways, and so there should be some sort of mechanism in place to do that. But right now, there isn't. So right now, she's basically trying to challenge the California law and... Which is the most surrogacy-friendly law in right, the Right, yeah, right? there's like yeah. a reason that California is the country or the, the state that gave us, you know, Octomom and right. all of, you know, <laughs> yeah, there's been like all, actually a whole bunch of surrogacy scandals in California. And the weird thing is, is that, right, her lawyer, Harold Cassidy, is this, you know, very conservative Catholic who's also very active in the anti-abortion movement and is not somebody I would usually find myself sympathetic to on any issue, but I... There, I do feel very sympathetic to Melissa and her case, um, you know, and the case that he's making on her behalf. And be, I mean, on a couple of different levels. On the one hand, it seems pretty clear to me that 
even if somebody signs a contract, you can't force them to have an abortion. Right. Right. I mean, that's as that, much of an issue of reproductive rights. Right. As that's you say reproductive in the piece. rights. Yeah. yeah. That's a violation of reproductive rights. And then it seems to me, again, it kind of in, on an intuitive level, wrong that there's that we decide parentage in these cases purely by contract. There's kind of no mechanism for a court to weigh anything except for a business contract. Right, because the the mother has no rights legally. She's right. Not well, the legally, mother. she's not the mother. Right. That, right? right. So, so basically, you, if you're if in a custody case, you have two people who are the parents, and you are deciding between them. But before you can even get to a custody case, you have to have parents. So, if she's not legally a parent, then she she has no standing to challenge custody. And the fact that she signed a contract. I mean, I want I want to broaden this out to a larger conversation in a second. But the fact that she signed a contract doesn't make you feel like them's the breaks? I mean, I don't feel like that in general. You know, I I never read, I have i don't think I've ever read, I've certainly never read a 75-page contract. Um, Thank goodness yeah. the, the Slate freelancer agreement is a 75-page contract. Yeah. You know, I think that, well, A, I think she was, she was poorly served by her first attorney. Who was paid um, for by the surrogacy company, right? Right. Well, who no, was paid for by the father. Oh, by the um, father. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, so she was poorly served in that sense. But I also just kind of feel like, I don't feel in general like them's the breaks. You know, I think that if somebody signed a contract to give someone else their kidney and then changed their mind, we wouldn't be like, sorry, you know. We're, you know, if somebody signed a contract to give up a baby for adoption and then reconsidered, we... There's mechanism they can do that, right? I mean, we, we kind of don't hold contracts um, sacrosanct in all cases. But certainly, and when so, when it's an issue of like something that seems bigger and more important to us, like family, we are we allow in our heads the notion that a contract shouldn't be the last line in that question. Right, and it went both morally and legally. I mean, legally, not all contracts are enforceable, you know. And so, so the what this turns on is is this contract enforceable? Is the judge trying to make a decision mostly or solely based on what's in the best interest of the children? Well, no, that it won't. It, it would have to. The, the judge can't, as it stands now, the judge can't consider what's in the best interest of the children because before a judge can do that, she would have to be ruled a parent. And then the judge could kind of weigh between the two of them what's in the best interest of the children. And it hasn't gone anywhere near that far. There's two different cases right now. There's the case in family court where the father has filed a motion having asking to be declared the sole parent um, of, the ch of these three children and kind of severing her parental rights before they're born. Because usually if you go to a hospital and you have a baby, you're automatically considered the mother, right? So he needs to get sort of some, a preemptive ruling that in this case, that's not true. And then there's the federal case where she and her lawyer are challenging California's surrogacy law, which kind of allows for these sorts of contracts and allows for um, her, her rights to the baby she's carrying to be kind of severed preemptively. Right. So one of the things that your piece really drove home to me that I hadn't really thought about before is not only how unregulated and how different all the laws are in the United States, but how surrogacy for money is like not legal in many, many places in the world. And I, you know, I, people I love have had babies through surrogacy and it seems crucial and important to me, but at the same time, I sort of get the willies when I learn that there's yeah. I mean, I feel the something same. that Americans do right. that everyone else thinks is a bad idea. I mean, I feel the same, I feel very much the same way. It's very hard for me to condemn surrogacy outright. You know, there's, kids in my building that my kids play with that 
were born through surrogacy arrangement and you know I certainly would never want to deny their parents the opportunity to have a family and so to me but I also don't know if the question is really that binary I don't even I don't have I don't have a problem with surrogacy and I don't even really have a problem with with commercial surrogacy or surrogacy for money I just think it's on it's completely it needs to be better regulated so if you were to write those laws, if someone said, Michelle, <laughs> it's on you. Here's a 75-page contract to write these laws. I think the, two, the places I would start, first of all, is that I would have some sort of um, background check akin to what you have in an, in an adopt, adoption, you know, some sort of home study, some, someone actually visiting the house, somebody actually determining who the next, if, if there is someone who's gonna take care of these kids if something happens to this parent, particularly when there's only one parent. Um, I mean, I think that that's a start. And then I think maybe there should be some sort of mechanism for a surrogate, not to kind of unilaterally claim custody, but some sort of mechanism in which a surrogate can kind of ask for a hearing on the best interests of the children. All right, the piece is really interesting. It is on Slate. It was our Monday cover story this week. Uh, everyone should totally check it out. We'll have a link on our Facebook page uh, and on our show page. Thank you very much, Thank Michelle. Thanks so much, Thanks, Michelle. Michelle. Really Thanks. Hey, this is Dan back in the studio taking a break from the live show to talk to you about our first sponsor, Bolin Branch. There's one really important thing that can make a live show go way better, and that's getting a really good night's sleep the night before. And so you should get sheets like we do from a sheet company that takes sleep just as seriously as every parent I know does, and that's Bull & Branch. Bull & Branch is the company that gets you luxury bedding, sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers uh, at a great price without the department store hassle and without the department store markup. And Bull and & Branch has a great offer for mom and dad or fighting listeners. You can go to bullandbranch.com today for 20% off your entire order, your entire order of sheets and towels and everything that they do. Plus, you get free shipping. It comes beautifully packaged, and they will let you try everything they make risk-free for 30 nights. After 30 nights, if you don't like it, send it back. No problem at all. You get 20% off your entire order at bullandbranch.com. Use the promo code Mom and Dad. That's B O L L A N D B R A N C H dot com. Promo code Mom and Dad. All right, back to the live show. Okay, now is the time of the show when we normally take a listener call. So if you've got questions, call us at 424 255 7833 and we'll try to answer them. But this week, we're going to take questions from the audience. So if you have a question, line up at the mic. And joining us to answer is my husband. <laughs> and parenting nemesis. Hello. John Cook, who is also the executive editor of noted mommy blog Gawker Media. <laughs> uh, so uh, I think people are really rushing to line up, but first I have a question, John. Um, I have a is, question for Allison, actually. When was the Civil War fought? <laughs> Damn. It was, it was totally in the 19th century. Um, John, how do you feel about this camp that you're... Uh, that one or none of your sons can afford to go to? First of all, the reason we can afford it is because uh, uh, we... we yes! <laughs> My parents we are helping us. <laughs> I think we're going to get into this. No, let's get we into it. Just lay it all bare. Uh, I was adamantly against it. Uh -huh. uh, it's too nice. Uh -huh. 
it's like a rich kids camp. You feel like it's not a camp unless your kids get Zika. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, just like the, 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 yeah, yeah. The, there should be like you know uh, they should be filthy and yeah. it should be basically like you know kicking cans on yeah. a on a on a, on a, on a yeah. Uh, we have a question right here. Hello. Tell us your name and also if you have kids, um, their ages and names if you if you're willing. If to you say. don't, oh, tell sure. us how great your life is. <laughs> um, my name is Becca and I have a daughter, Charlotte, who is 11 months old. Um, and thank you so much for your podcast. I love it. I listen to it regularly. Thanks. Thank you. Um, I have a question for Allison and her husband about how the city versus suburbs <laughs> is going. And, and I just want to hear an update on that. We went to New Jersey last Friday and our... Wait, you moved to New Jersey? No, we went oh. just to scout, scout it out. <laughs> They like on a scouting, on a scouting trip, or or just a scouting trip. Uh, like we looked, we looked at some open houses <laughs> and things like that. So I was just curious on the um, how it's going and everything. Maybe give maybe give listeners and people here who don't know the whole saga a little bit of background. <laughs> how much time do you have? <laughs> Uh, the abbreviated version of the saga is that we have three children, which as John says, like, what did you think was going to happen when we had a third kid? <laughs> um, we can't afford camp without your parents' help. Um, we lived in a decent size apartment, but one bathroom. Which, three, three bedroom, one bath. Like, really, like, five doing humans that. We, and we a dog. We once found um, Harry <laughs> sitting and peeing on the toilet with Sam standing, facing him, peeing through his legs. <laughs> Which I was very proud of. Anyway, so I thought we could live like that forever. John did not. And he ultimately won and dragged me to New Jersey. Um, so you just want to know how it's going. How's it going? Yeah. Uh, it's great. It's fantastic. Uh, I have a Other than the loneliness. I have, I have a cord of firewood stacked in, the, in our backyard. We have a fireplace. Okay. I like that. It's, uh, you guys? wake up and John starts a fire at yeah. like 10 in the morning. I am sure there's someone in the audience that has been subjected to this. Um, starts a fire at 10 in the morning. The house is like, I'm like choking, gagging all day. It's going. I mean, you know you need to open the damper in your house. Yeah, no, I know. But the, the, the advantage of the fire is I get to sit there and like watch the fire. Yeah. Like I, could, I don't need television. Like I, I, I can't deal with you right now. I have to tend this fire. Make sure. I, I feel like ultimately it was the only decision we could make. And so I'm at peace with it. But there are a lot of things <laughs> that I miss about here. And there are a lot of things that I love about there. I'm not yet the person who's like, you know, I can't. I don't know how you guys do it. I don't know how you live in Brooklyn. <laughs> I don't feel that way yet. This is, this is very emotional because we're actually back in Brooklyn, right. which is you know. But I rode the subway. But here do it. You should do it. You should totally do it. <laughs> you should, if possible, move to Maplewood and be friends with Allison. <laughs> Thank okay, you very much. Thank you so much. Hello. Hi. Hi. I'm Roger. I'm the father of James, who is six months. Uh, and my question is for, for both halves of the uh, loving, loving Brooklyn and loving suburbs uh, divide here, but of when you left Brooklyn, uh, what is the thing that you were obsessed with that you thought you would miss the most that you don't? And then regarding the suburbs, what is the thing that you love the most that you know just wouldn't exist in an urban environment? The thing um, that I love the most that I didn't expect um, is the walk to the train station. It's like to and from the train station to commute into the city. It's quiet and the houses are pretty and it's just like a, I don't know, it's just, it's a different kind of walk than to the subway here and it gives me a tiny bit of peace. 
It's your, it's your five minutes of peace yeah. in your entire life? Yeah. Yeah. What did you think you would miss about Brooklyn, but it turns out you don't miss it at all? Nothing. <laughs> I, she, I Allison yeah. thought she'd miss the murderers, but she doesn't even miss the murderers. I guess I don't miss the trash. Sometimes I still miss the trash. But like, <laughs> I don't miss the trash all the time. Uh, as it. someone who has been in the suburbs longer than <laughs> you guys, uh, I will say that I, um, I really thought that I would miss just like the city noise. I thought I was the kind, like I thought I had turned into the kind of guy who could not go to sleep without like honking horns and swearing hobos outside my window. <laughs> But it turns out, actually, I can. In fact, I sleep better. <laughs> Thanks very much. I, yeah, I can't oh. think. I don't. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next question. Hi, I'm Nicole. Um, I have two daughters, Catherine, who's 11, and Vivian, who is 8. And uh, recently, our 11-year-old has become very good friends with a boy. And from um, snooping on her texts, I can see that there's lots of like heart emojis going on. Um, so we got a text from our babysitter a couple of weeks ago that said, you know, I have to drop the other kid off at dance class. Um, Catherine and, and this boy want to know, can they stay here while I go do that? And certainly if it was a, a friend who was a girl, I would have no problem leaving them alone for half an hour. And they're 11. And I don't know what the rules are for having your girls be friends with boys when they're 11, and at what point that changes. As long as there are no eggplant emojis, I think you're probably okay. <laughs> it's mainly the cats with the heart eyes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, like, that's the most sexless of emojis. <laughs> I think it's fine. I think it's fine. I think, like, I mean, they'll definitely get into trouble, but it's not trouble that, like, you should worry about that much. It's like wholesome, funny trouble, not damaging, horrible trouble. <laughs> At right? what like, age do you worry about damaging, horrible trouble? I mean, certainly it, puberty would have to occur first, right? I don't know. I would assume, I yeah. I mean, I, like, they'll maybe steal your credit cards and order some stuff. <laughs> on Seamless, but other than that, I think it'll be okay. How, at what age did you give her a phone? Um... It's your fault. That's what he's trying to say. No, I just want to know. I actually already asked Nicole this during the cocktail hour, and she ducked the question. No, she, she got a phone when she was 10, when the number of children who had phones uh, went over 50% at okay. her age range. And now she walks to school by herself and things like that, so she actually does use it to like keep in touch with the babysitter and things like that, because she's in middle school. I think you should encourage this this friendship, and I think it's fine for them to be alone together. But you could also talk to her. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she was explaining to her younger sister that, that boys couldn't have sleepovers with girls, and her younger sister was like, why? And she said, I don't know. I think it's like the first rule in the parenting book is like, <laughs> no sleepovers with boys. God, what if there was a, a parenting book? <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? Thank you so Thank much, you. Nicole. All right. We're take we have one, one more, more question. Hi. My name is Jacqueline, and I have two and a half year old twins. And um, the question we were actually talking about on our way out here was my twins are still using their binkies to go to sleep, and they're also still in their cribs. So this summer, I decided that they're going to have to go into big girl beds, and we're going to have to take care of the binkies since they're going to be three. 
but what comes first? Take away the binkies, put them in their beds. If it's not broke, don't fix it. Wait, uh, binkies, uh, blankets, or? Um, no, like oh, okay. pacifiers. Oh, I'd say, um, I mean, I would give them a phone first. <laughs> <laughs> You're old enough in New York. I would do it all at once. Yeah, do it I all would at just once. Do it all at once. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's going to be horrible no matter what, so just fucking do it. <laughs> They're, right? they're not going to remember it. Don't worry about it. No, they yeah. just don't know about everything. Like, what's worse? Do you take the binkies? That's what he said about moving. And they it's do remember. It's true. They won't remember it. They won't, no matter what horrible thing happens, they won't remember it what's later. What's less traumatizing for me? Oh. Uh, yeah. Well, so, like, are you a rip the Band-Aid off fast person, or are you a take it off really slowly because maybe it won't hurt as much person? to think I'm the rip it off. Be that person and just fucking do it. <laughs> Although I do think, I think the bed would be an easier transition. To start with the bed first. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, that's more not, like, that's like, that's like two or three nights max. Right, and that's more like an adventure that they're embarking on and less like a finger. <laughs> the audience was just was like, no. <laughs> Some of the audience yeah, still, still sleeps in their cribs. Yeah, and our five-year-old still drags around a blanket that we haven't taken away from him, like so a, we really shouldn't a, be giving any advice or hosting a podcast. <laughs> Allison just negated the entire purpose of this podcast. Thank you so Thank much you. for your question. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. Thank you, John Cook, executive editor of Gawker and client of my wife. Have fun at your trial, John. Once again, here's Dan in the studio. Mom and Dad are Fighting is also brought to you by Club W, who's leading the grape-to-glass wine revolution. With Club W, you don't have to worry about going to the wine store and figuring out which of these bottles is good and which is bad and how you even know whether it's good or bad, and especially how you know whether you're going to like it or not. At Club W, you fill out their revolutionary palette profile survey, and they will create a profile just for you that discusses, that figures out what you like what your tastes are, how sharp or fruity or lasting a wine you like. And they will send wines directly to you that they have made, that they have gotten directly from winemakers to appeal to your taste. Club W is offering mom and dad or fighting listeners 50% off their first order. That is 50% off when you go to clubw.com slash mom and dad. Don't ever come home to a wine-free house again. I made that mistake once. I'll never do it again. Just go to clubw.com slash mom and dad and get 50% off your first order. All right, back to the live show. Uh, okay, moving on to segment number two. Uh, I'm very, very, very excited about our three next guests. Um, they are three incredibly creative people making art for family audiences, and we're going to talk to them today about what it's like when your biggest fans our little, little people. Uh, okay, moving on to segment number two. Uh, I'm very, very, very excited about our three next guests. Um, they are three incredibly creative people making art for family audiences, and we're gonna talk to them today about what it's like when your biggest fans are little, little people. Uh, Lori Berkner is an award-winning, best-selling recording artist for children who's known for her nine albums and her appearances on Jack's Big Music Show and Sing It, Lori. Matt De La Pena is the author of five young adult novels, including Ball Don't Lie, and he won a Newbery Medal this year for his picture book with Christian Robinson, Last Stop on Market Street. And Rebecca Stead is also a Newbery winner for her remarkable novel, When You Reach Me, which also happens to be Lyra's all-time favorite book. Please welcome Lori Berkner, Matt De La Pena, and Rebecca Stead. 
All right, so welcome. We are so glad that you guys are here. Um, now, I think that each of you have had a little bit of a different experience in your career as a, as a children's artist um, with your own children. Now, do you all have children, is that correct? But some of you started making children's art before you had kids, like Lori, I think, for example, and Rebecca, right? And Matt, did you, no, Rebecca, you, no. you did not start until after you had already had kids. Right. So how do you find that making, those of you who started before you had kids, how do you find that making art for kids changes when you have your own kids in the audience? And, and Rebecca, for you, how do you find that, do you find that it feels easy to you, or do you find that, it, that you wonder if you ever could have done this before you had kids, whether you could have made that connection? Um, wow. That's a good question. I actually don't think about my kids much when I'm working and writing. I mostly write from my own childhood, really, from my own memory of being a kid, and that's what I'm thinking about. In fact, if I, I think if I thought about my kids a lot when I was working, I, it would kind of mess with my head a little bit. I, it just would not bring me to my um, creative place. I, that's not a diss. I mean, I just, I, I just, it's I mean, maybe like it's my a parenting of your brain is really very different from my creative brain. That's interesting. I mean, is that true for the, for the rest of you too? Is, do you find those are two totally separate worlds for you? I gotta say, like for me, I was so excited to have a daughter because I'd been asking other authors, like, what's it like, you know, when your kid reads your book? And now I had a picture book and I was so excited to read this picture book to my daughter so I got the F and G, which is like the, the galley form of the picture book. And I read it to my daughter. She was about four months old, and she just started sobbing. And, like, and I was like, this is not what I was planning. So, <laughs> so you know what I did is I said, you know what, it's late tonight. Maybe she's just like in a bad mood. And I put her to bed. And then early in the morning, her best hours, I read it again, and she started sobbing again. Well, so Matt, I, maybe she was just extremely moved. Yeah. yeah. Well, she doesn't live with us anymore. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But eventually she came around. It took her a year. Lori, how did reading it to her every day. Oh, yeah, every day. Yeah, yeah. How did it change for you, Lori? Um, well, I had been doing children's music for about 10 years before I had my daughter. And I was terrified of becoming a parent, actually, because I thought it would change everything about how I wrote. Because I... Like you, Rebecca, I think a lot about my own memories. I connect a lot to my inner child <laughs> and being a parent. Of course, there's that too, but I really imagined that I would start to see the whole world from that adult perspective that I was didn't really want to be writing from um, because I want the music to feel like it's owned by the kids, you know, that it's really, when they sing those songs, they feel like it's them singing, not being sung to. Um, and basically, the first year that I had my daughter, I wrote a ton of songs, and every single one of them had the name Lucy in it. It was like all, everything was about her. Um, and uh, and after a while, I just had to kind of force myself to remember I don't. Oh yeah, that's the parent song. No, no, I'm not writing that one right now. I'm mm. gonna write something else. So it 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 made a big difference. So you guys are all New Yorkers. Um, you live in different parts of New York, all of you. But how do you find that the city? affects your ability and your interest in making art for kids, and how do you see it reflect in your own work? Oh, I, Matt, I, go first. Sure. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I live in New York, but I get to go into high schools 
and, and middle schools and even elementary schools all over the country. And it's very interesting to see how kids in New York are growing up differently from kids in Ohio. And it's fun for me to be, you know, to kind of like go to the gym, play basketball with these young guys and just listen to them. And so sometimes like I tell people, like, I don't even think I'm writing anything new. I'm just plagiarizing what I hear, you know? Totally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's fun in New York, though, because you hear very interesting language uh, constructions. Like, I'm very interested in the, the poetry of broken English. So that plays out in so many different ways because there's so many people from different communities here. I was thinking similarly that I, I write a lot of songs by just taking a walk outside or getting on a bus and uh, listening to kids talking and catching a snippet of something and going, oh my God, that's a perfect song. You know, they're yeah. just, they just talk in lyrics all yeah, the time totally. to me. Yeah, and um, so that is a really exceptional thing about living in the city is that I can, I'm not taking my car everywhere and sort of isolated in my transportation. I can just go outside and um, at the end of the block, there's a tot lot and you know, I can, not hopefully look too weird walking around there by myself. <laughs> but, um, you know, I do that a lot. I actually detour through playgrounds and places just to listen to what kids say. Yeah. I'm curious how you guys think about your audience. Like, are you, are you, because they're kids, are you trying to teach, do you feel like you're trying to teach a lesson through your work? Are you trying to push them to feel certain emotions or to confront certain, you know, fears? Or are you just trying to entertain them or none of those things? Um, I think we're definitely trying to entertain them. Um, but aside from that, I don't, yeah, I hate messagey books. Um, so I don't write with a message. But I, d I do at the same time, I think as a writer, I have a goal, um, which is that I want my readers to kind of, there's like, I, what I really want is some kind of like opening. Like, an, like, I want my readers to feel a little bit braver about connecting with other people in the world mm. and a little bit maybe in awe, you know, of, I don't know, life, death, and the beauty of it all, and also a little bit more willing to be vulnerable. So I have these, like, weird, lofty, probably unattainable goals, <laughs> but, but nothing, nothing with, like, a specific message. You know what I mean? Yeah, I would actually concur with that quite a bit. Um, I think, you know, when I'm writing, I definitely avoid the message because that's the death of good literature. But I think all writers do have a point of view and this is a place you're coming from. And for me, I mean, I view myself as kind of a working class warrior, you know? So I'm always writing about working class kids and mixed kids because I'm a mixed race myself. So you do kind of have a place you, you're coming from. So even though you're not, you're not coming at it with a message, it's like there's something that you're exploring, and it's more of a question than an answer. Yep. Yeah, I think a lot about um, wanting to write about things that I care about, right? And that I kind of, uh, both that I think about as an adult and that I also worried about or loved or had some kind of a feeling, whatever it was, about as a kid. Mm -hmm. So it's... Combining those two things, I think, often is what makes it interesting for me to sing the songs and write the songs, and then relevant for a kid to listen to the songs. And then hopefully that also means, since, since what I'm writing is music and I want everybody in the family to be listening to it, then hopefully it's also relevant for the adults that are listening. Um, but saying 
again, giving a message is that that ends up being something that makes me feel like I'm being didactic, like I'm teaching, and I want the music to be different from going to school. It's like it's yeah. fun and yeah, it's enjoyable, cool. but I do hope I do hope that people will feel or be affected in some way, even if it's just that they thought it was funny or in, yeah. you know enjoyed it. But it's interesting though because there is a message still encoded in this work, and it's and I think you guys are all artists who are very good at not making it didactic and not making that feel to adult readers or to kid readers, like that's the point of it. But you know, it's like when I read your most recent novel, Rebecca, there's, there's clearly a real message there that kids can pull out about respecting their own bodies and respecting technology. Mm -hmm. And Matt, there's clearly a message in your book, which won the Newberry this year, about doing good for the world and, and embracing the life that you have and embracing the opportunities that you have. And so it's interesting to me to think of those as driven not by the goal of telling those those of, not by the goal of putting those messages forth when you write, but those are the things that you believe in, and so they sort of naturally grow in the things that you are writing and working on. All yeah, could I throw this out there? I, th I think the cool thing about writing in any uh, medium is that you, you leave space for the reader, and so the reader is the one who pulls those, those messages, you know, and you're not planting them there, you're just telling a story with this point of view, but the reader can come in and and, and make the work bigger than it really is, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's interesting that it, for all of you, the reader or the listener or whoever, it's a very small person who doesn't have that much experience necessarily meeting a work halfway. Mm -hmm. And so I always wonder how much you think about that, how much you think about that, that small person who maybe has never thought about this issue at all, who never has thought about texting in the, in the capacity that you're talking about, or has mm -hmm. never thought about the things that you're singing about, and you're it, both introducing these new ideas and asking them to meet you halfway, do you think about how hard it might be for them to reach you? Do you think about how you also pitch the message to a parent to help them help them come to grips with those things? I think that's, um, it's, I, I actually think very much the way, we didn't plan this, but <laughs> <laughs> very much the way Matt does, and I talk about readers' work all the time, and, um, I, but I, you do have to think about what you're putting out there and what the reader has to work with. But I think that um, it boils down to respect, really, for your reader. So if I'm writing about three seventh graders who are um, exploring sexuality, using their phones in new creative ways, and talking to one another, and loving one another, and challenging one another, um, I'm, I'm not, I don't have a point of view about which of these kids is making exactly the right decisions and which of them is making mistakes because I trust my readers to have their own thoughts, come to their own conclusions. And um, I think that, you know, any good book for children does that. I mean, not with, you know, in, 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 in its own way. I, I wanted to ask, Laura, you have said that you had trouble writing music until you decided to write music for children. Can you, articula can you articulate or do you even know why that sort of helped you? Oh, I didn't have trouble writing music. I had trouble writing good music. Okay. <laughs> 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 I mean, I, think, I, I, mean I, I, well, okay, sort of. I mean, I just felt like I wrote these songs that just went on and on and on and on <laughs> and um, very kind of... Um, 
I don't know. You just didn't want to listen to all of them. But I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, big rock band and long, long things. So I, when I started writing music for kids, I started realizing, oh, if I have something to say, I have to say it quickly, interestingly, and a lot of times in the same song and then be done. And that was like, oh, that I could do that. Like that actually was kind of fun because it really forced me to edit what I was writing and to be very focused about what I was trying to say. Um, and and in just on that last question, it was making me think a lot. I have a, a song called I'm Not Perfect. And um, it was something that I totally wrote for myself because I lost my date book before anyone even had PDAs. <laughs> Does anyone even know what that is? <laughs> oh, sure, my, my Palm Pilot. <laughs> yes, yeah. before I had my Palm Pilot, <laughs> before my, my, uh, my iPhone. And I, my date book had, I was like doing birthday parties for kids and it had everybody's, um, wow. all the information in there and I thought only in there and I lost it on a bus and I did not get it back and I had this, you know, every night I go to bed going, like, <gasps> whose party am I forgetting tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> what child is going to like be traumatized for life oh, because no. they didn't show up and ruin their birthday party? And um, so I just started singing this song to myself, I'm not perfect and I'm not perfect, you know, I'm, I, I was in therapy at the time, it was very, <laughs> it was very appropriate and um, but it came out as this very short little ditty that, like, I just used the word ditty. That <laughs> felt so, it felt so soothing to say to myself. And I would then get letters from parents like, oh, my two-year-old is singing that now, you know. And, it, of course, they're confused because everyone tells them, you're perfect, just <laughs> the way you are. But, but And so then there's a discussion, right? And I remember thinking, well, will any kid really get this? And... Um, they do, you know, just what you were talking about, Rebecca, that like respect for your audience. Um, but also letters from adults who are like, I was out of work and I just sat around and listened to that song and it made me feel better, yeah. <laughs> you know. So it is, um, yeah, it's kind of neat to think about where is it going to hit and find out where those things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. All right, so I'm really curious about what it is like to have a bunch of kids who really who love your work and really look up to you i only have two kids in my house who think i'm terrible uh and don't respect me at all so i'm just curious like you know what are those experiences like and also kids can be very upfront critics of your work and i mean have you had that experience of a kid just straight up telling you yeah no your book is not for me your song is boring. We want to know, like, the horror stories <laughs> oh, yeah. from your shows and readings. Okay, I'll tell you one that's, that's amazing to me to this day. It happened five years ago. Um, this kid sent me an email, and he said, my first book is called Ball Don't Lie, and the title was Ball Don't Lie, Best Book Ever. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to sit down with a beer and read this one. <laughs> so I was very excited. And then uh, I read it, and it was talking about some kid named Bob that lived in North Carolina, which was completely not my book. So he just got the title mixed up. (laughs) And I was like, oh, thanks, bro. But so does anybody ever quote Charles Barkley on your show? On on this show? No. Charles Barkley has never once been quoted on this show. Okay, so he has this idea where he said, if everyone likes you, you're lying to somebody. And I feel like that and translates to that art. Oh, you have, okay. <laughs> so that's old news, old news. But I just think that you just know that, hey, look, not everybody's going to like what you do. And, and the quicker you can get over yourself, the better. I mean, that's a lesson that uh, authors for adults have trouble learning, for sure. But maybe they just don't have enough people email them and tell them that they just didn't like their stuff. Maybe. 
What about the other two of you? Have you? I mean, do you have? Both I once got a letter. I opened it up, and it just said, "Do you have J.K. Rowling's telephone number?" <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> but do you? <laughs> I don't. Sorry. I remember the first show I ever did was um, uh, I was by myself in a, like a auditorium and. I went out there and I started playing and I realized when I would do songs that the kids didn't like, they just walked away. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I thought, this is why I love kids' music. You yeah. know immediately what is going on. It's much better than playing to drunk people at like <laughs> one in the morning on Long Island. <laughs> and you know, but it was really great because that it, I learned so much. It's like, oh, that's not what I'm going to do in this show again, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know? Um, so, yeah, I, I find them to be pretty straight-up harsh critics. All right. <laughs> so what music or books, like, what do you guys um, love for your kids? And, do you, and I'm especially curious, Lori, do you, when, you're, when your daughter was growing up, did you play kids' music for her, or did you... You only played your own songs. <laughs> <laughs> this is mommy. This yeah. is dad. Um, I tried things like Louis Prima and Hawaiian slack key guitar, and there was only so far that that would go. And then, yeah, I started playing um, other music. Actually, one that I remember a lot was that we played Brady Reimer stuff, and now he plays with me, which is like the most incredible oh, thing. Cool. <laughs> Matt, what is uh, what is your daughter like to read that does not make her cry? <laughs> well, almost everything else she seems to be fine with. <laughs> no, you know what? <laughs> I got to tell you, like, it's uh, my first picture book. I did it before I had a daughter, and she's 21 months old now. And watching her mind just light up when you read picture books to her, it's like now, you are, now I understand the power of the picture book. It's just an incredible experience. And watching her want the book three times in a row and look at different things each time, and feel the emotion of the arc. Like sometimes she gets upset when a monkey loses his, I don't know, the stuff in his, his suitcase. Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. But so you know, I, I just I love it and I try to she's she's a mixed race kid and so I, I love doing diverse books with her, especially I think it's really important for her, especially living in Brooklyn. So my boys are teenagers. I've lost all control or connection to the material they're looking at. Um, I prob I yeah, maybe I should stop right there. <laughs> my my older son for about a year, he was a huge reader. Um, he just read anything, really. That you know anything that that we had in the house, he would read. So he would read books with girls on the cover and, you know, glitter and things that people say boys won't read. He totally read it. He read tons of science fiction. He loves graphic novels. Read all kinds of stuff. And then for about 18 months, he would only read fan fiction. And I thought, this is really fascinating. Mm. He's appreciating other people's writing and he's learning about the craft of writing. You guys know about fan fiction. Oh, right? I, I know about it hardcore. In my yeah. Books, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so then like three years later, he said, Mom, a lot of that was kind of like erotic. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So all those times I was approvingly thinking, oh, he's really in the <laughs> forefront. Of, you know, like a reader's experience in today's world. Um, so, yeah. But I will say that both my kids um, 
grew up in in part up to a point on Lori's music. So it's very fun That's to be cool. here with her. Uh, all right, thank you so much, all three of you. Everyone should check out everyone's work here. Lori Berkner's music, Matt Delapena and Rebecca Stead's books, they are all really, really great. We are so happy and proud to have all three of you here. Everyone give them a hand, please. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, one more time, Dan in the studio at our live show, which we recorded last night. We uh, had a bunch of copies of The Terrible Two Get Worse from our great third sponsor, Abrams Books. Uh, it's a great sequel to The Terrible Two, which you may remember if you're a longtime listener to the show, was a favorite book of Lyra's and a favorite book of mine. It also was a favorite book of many people. It's been over 10 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. It's published by Amulet, and the series has turned the world upside down for lovers of pranks and pranksters. It's perfect for fans of Diary of a Wimpy Kid. It's perfect for reluctant readers. The authors, longtime friends, and certified pranksters, Mac Barnett and Jory John, are bent on prankster domination. In the sequel, this new installment, The Terrible Two Get Worse. Check it out. It's from Abrams Books, and you can get it wherever books are sold. Back to the show. Let's move on to recommendations, Dan. Okay. Um, I'm going to recommend a recipe, which is great for... Um, this is actually a very high-pressure recommendation. I did not think it would be because uh, our food editor is sitting right there. <laughs> Uh, L.V. Anderson. Um, but so this is a really great recipe, which is perfect for the days when you have been inside your house because of snow for 12 straight days, and your kids haven't gone to school and you don't have any food left, but you need to make dinner anyway. Um, it is spaghetti with fried eggs and olive oil. It's so easy. You just heat up some olive oil and you throw some garlic and maybe some shallots in it, if you even have shallots, and then you boil some spaghetti, and then you drop a couple of eggs, you crack some eggs in the oil, and then when the whites are set, you just mix all that shit up together, and then you put so much Parmesan cheese in it. Uh, and it's not only easy and delicious, and it has everything that you already have in your house, but it is the first thing that I have made in 11 months that both my children willingly ate. <laughs> so it was a huge, enormous success. Uh, that's it. It's so easy. That's all there is to it. Allison, what about you? Yeah, a lot of people wrote in the last time. I don't remember what we were talking about, but I said I had never cooked chicken before, and people sent me all these like easy chicken recipes. Yeah. And you I laughed at them all. Them. I haven't it's tried any of them. And that, for me. that was starting to sound easy, and then the egg whites. You just happened. crack an egg in a pan. <laughs> Uh, okay, my recommendation is, so for my, my parents are both turning 70 this year, and for their 70th birthday, uh, they said all they wanted was for me and my sister to come visit them in Florida without our spouses and without our children. <laughs> so basically, they just, they wanted to pretend like we had never grown up. <laughs> and my sister and I thought this was a very strange request, which we haven't told them that we thought it was strange, but now they're going to hear it. Yeah. Um, but we decided we should do it because this is really all they wanted, and we also couldn't think of anything better to get them. We got them like a platter. Um, but so we did this, and it was really fun. I highly recommend it. I wouldn't do it like all the time, but um, yeah, original family vacations. My parents treated us, I mean, you have to really, you have to buy into it. So let them pay for everything, <laughs> let them do your laundry. <laughs> Uh, when Allison told me this story, I laughed because my my mom asked the exact same thing out of me and my brother. She was like, "I, you know, of course, I I love Ali and Stacy, 
but I just would love to spend some time with my boys. <laughs> So we're going with her to the Grand Canyon in April to let her buy everything. The I thing guess. that's actually really nice about it, genuinely really nice about it, this is a really great trip. I mean, of course, it's really nice to like not have any responsibility when you normally have three kids and a husband who you're responsible. I'm mean, not really responsible for you, but uh, but it's also nice because it's this very familiar dynamic, right? It's like the yeah. family you grew up with, but now you're all adults, and I don't know, there was something special about no, that. No, I have so. really liked the times when I've been able to like be with my brother as brothers, except for now we're adults, so we're not assholes all the time. Right, yeah. right. That's big. Uh, that's a great recommendation. Everyone should totally do that if you have the chance. That's our show. Please like us on Facebook so that we hit a million likes and Allison and I can get in a fight and she can move back to Brooklyn. Uh, it's facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting and send us an email at mom and dad at slate.com to give us ideas for topics or guests or to send Allison chicken recipes that she will not cook. <laughs> mom and dad are fighting is part of the panoply network. See our entire roster of shows at itunes.com slash panoply. Thank you to all of our guests, Michelle Goldberg, Rebecca said, Matt de la Pena, Lori Bergner, and even John Cook. Thanks to Faith Smith, Ann Hepperman, Daniel Powell, The Bell House, Abrams Books, Steve Lichtai, and Annie Bowers. And thank you to our amazing audience here in Brooklyn. Thank you, Brooklyn. Give yourselves a hand. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Allison. Good night. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.